Welcome to Hack Stack Level 3. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to build deeper connections and stronger relationships with the people you care about. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first two levels, starting with episode number one. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to Hack Stack Level 3. You are now listening to episode number 20. I think we're going to cover some pretty good stuff on this show, and I'm going to start off with a, a lofty claim. I, I'm going to claim that if you listen to this show and employ the tactics and techniques and hacks used in this show, you will never have another argument again. Now, I know that's a big claim, and I need to clarify what I mean by argument. I'm talking about a specific type of argument. So in general, I'm actually, I think arguments are good. And when I say arguments, I mean in the uh, philosophical, classical Greek sense when, you know, you have two intellectuals going at it, trying to ferret out a problem, solve an issue, use logic and reason to go head to head, premises and conclusion and at the end of the day, the best idea wins. And I'm a big fan of the uh, John Wooden quote, uh, the uh, basketball coach, used to coach for UCLA. He said, whatever you do in life, surround yourself with smart people who will argue with you. And the natural conclusion from that is they'll sharpen your skills, you, you will abandon uh, bad ideology, and you'll be a better person for it. That, my friends, is not the type of argument I am talking about. When I say you'll never argue again, I mean the friend relationship type squabbling, nagging, nitpicking at someone you care about or even even someone you don't care about. When voices get raised, things of that nature, relationship bad kind of arguments, those can be eliminated from your life with a little bit of practice. Now, after the last show, we talked about how important questions are, and I'm going to start off with a series of questions. I want you to answer these as I, I ask them, you know, just kind of make a note as to what your answers are. All right. So would you consider yourself a giving person? Would you consider yourself a selfish person? Would you consider yourself to be honest? Are you a liar? Are you a respectful person? Are you a disrespectful person? Are you courageous? Are you cowardly? Are you a hard worker? Are you lazy? Are you loving? Are you mean-spirited? Are you a rational person? Are you an irrational person? Are you a bad person? And finally, are you a good person? Which, by the way, is a very interesting question with a whole lot of different angles to it. And I think we'll spend a little more time on that specific question during the extra credit. But for now, I want you to kind of keep all of those questions in the back of your mind. And we'll come back to those in just a little bit. But for now, I'm going to transition over into a story. Now, I'm going to tell you a story because I think it's a pretty good metaphor for everything that 
is wrong with every relationship conflict ever. It's pretty simplified, but I, but I think you'll get the get the point. So sometimes I travel for work. You know, it comes in waves. Sometimes I'll travel more. Sometimes I'll travel less. But uh, in, in any given year, I, I travel a decent amount, and I've spent my fair share of time on an airplane. And there was one particular trip where it was me and a coworker slash friend of mine that were going on a business trip, and. When you go on these trips, they potentially are, you know, only just a couple days. So you want to kind of pack lean and mean so you can get on the plane, get off the plane. You don't want to check a big bag. You don't want to worry about going to the, the luggage carousel and picking the bags up. So you pretty much get, what, a carry-on case and maybe like a backpack or something like that. So when, <laughs> when I'm going on like one or two day trips... I try and stuff the heck out of all of those things so I don't have to carry around and track down a piece of luggage that could potentially get lost when I'm only going to be in town for a day or two. So that was the MO of a trip I had and both me and my buddy were going on this trip and he's doing the same thing. So we got a carry on and we stuffed our backpacks. You know, we've got laptops in there. We probably got clothes for presentation, you know, we got work clothes, you've got maybe a casual outfit for a dinner, and then you maybe even have some workout clothes if you're feeling a little bit feisty. The point being is we got a lot of stuff packed into very little baggage. So we get to the airport and we're waiting to board and I look at my my boarding pass. I'm I'm gloating because I'm in boarding group B and he is in boarding group C. So I, I go in first, and there's a whole bunch of other people that were in boarding group A first. So, you know, you're waiting for the people to sit down and put their luggage up in the in the overhead baggage compartments. And you're walking by people that have already sat down, and, you know, you're kind of bumping them here and there. No big deal, right? So I go I go to the maybe the middle of the plane. Uh, actually, no, it's probably closer to the back of the plane. And I, I sit down, I find a seat, and I, you know, I take off my backpack, and I shove it under the seat, and it barely, barely fits. So... I'm getting there, I'm kind of cozy, and I'm, I'm just waiting for the rest of the passengers to board. And I notice uh, my friend comes on, and he's got this <laughs> same backpack that's totally stuffed. And he's going along, he's just waiting. And for some reason, he, he had to turn, and he turned a certain way. He was probably trying to get by something in the aisle or, or squeeze through. And he turned in such a way <laughs> where he totally smacks this guy in the head with his backpack. And, you know, my friend keeps going and I'm looking at the guy that he smacked and, you know, this guy's looking over his shoulder and kind of giving my, my friend the stink eye, which, you know, is understandable. He just kind of got pegged in the face. And then my friend sits down and, you know, he puts his backpack under the under the seat in front of him and he's looking at me like, OK, yeah, I'm this. This is pretty easy. I'm all ready to go and no worse for the wear. He's smiling. He's, he's hunkering down for the plane ride. And I, I'm laughing and he's like, well, what, you know, what are you laughing at? And I'm like, well, uh, I'll tell you about it later. You know, it was, it was kind of loud. It was hard for us to talk. But I kept thinking how, I don't know, it just struck me as funny that he totally hit this guy in the head with a big honking backpack. And he had no idea. He had no idea that he had he had hurt this guy. And then I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, you know what? I was moving around a lot too. I wonder if, man, I wonder if I hit that, that same guy. You know, he's a bigger guy and... 
pretty hard not to hit if you had to turn even just a little bit. So then I'm thinking, because of this guy's stature, he he may have gotten hit by all sorts of people. And my friend was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And anyway, I don't know. It stuck me as a, a humorous situation. But for whatever reason, I started to think about that. I'm like, you know, that's a lot like relationships. And I know this may seem like a stretch, but I'm telling you, the more people I talk to and the more uh, stories I hear about little squabbles that kind of break out between family and friends and coworkers and and whatnot, I I start to hear like a common thread. And that that is the the person that is the one that's injured, man, I'm telling you like eight or (laughs) nine times out of 10, the person that did the injuring either A, has no idea, or B, they think the injury was no big deal, like not at all. As I know, yeah, I probably grazed that guy with the backpack. It's not it's not a big deal. He's not hurt at all. He'll, he'll get over it. You look back, he's got like a bloody nose. Like, like there's just a disconnect between the injury that's felt by the person that's injured and the perceived injury of the person that's kind of doing the hurting. And that's pretty much the root of all conflict, right? So you have person A that hit person B with a backpack, all right? So <laughs> this is a metaphor, now stay with me. So person B is is injured. Now person A probably doesn't know that he even hit or hurt person B. You know, person A could be a bull in an emotional china shop. And person B could be sensitive, Re- regardless of different personality dispositions you know one party is injured and one party doesn't know that they injured a person so what happens well the person that got hurt thinks about it they kind of mull this over in their head they're like oh this guy should apologize to me and he's not apologizing oh i'm really mad at this person i'm not going to talk to this person i can't believe they did that you know they just have these kind of conversations in their head that spiral out of control meanwhile the first person's like well, dude, why isn't this guy talking to me anymore? He seems like he's mad at me. I'm, I don't know why he's mad at me. But you know what? He's being really rude. So he is rude. I'm not going to talk to him. So then over time, you've got two people that are, are growing apart. One is still hurt and injured. And the other is wondering why this other person is rude and distant. And then if you want to throw in a slight variation on this same theme, so imagine person B that got hurt tells person C about what a jerk person A is. So now person B and person C are gossiping back and forth about, you know, what did person A do to you? Oh, I can't believe he did that to you. And now all of a sudden this this gossip thing's going around. So so person B should be alerting person A and talking to person A about, you know, the injury. Instead, most likely because the person B is uh, afraid of bringing the subject up, afraid of confrontation, but still needs an outlet. So person B gossips with person C. And guess what? Eventually, you guessed it, person A hears about the gossip somehow through person C. So now <laughs> person C and A are now talking and now A is all of a sudden really, really fired up because person B is talking bad about person A behind his back or something like that. So you see how this this whole thing just sort of spins out of control and there's two major reasons for this and this is what I want you to focus in on because again, I think it's the foundation for probably... plus of all interpersonal conflicts. Somebody, person A, 
hurts another person and doesn't really realize it. Okay, that's that's the first step. The second step is person B doesn't talk to person A about it, right? So there is a fear of having that conversation. And then any gossip between person B and C just sort of adds fuel to the fire. But the main underlying thing is person A hurts somebody and doesn't realize it. And person B is afraid to talk about that situation. Now, if person A and person B eventually do talk, there's there's a whole lot of things that could happen. But one of the, if, you, if you've read, and if you haven't, you probably should read it. It's uh, Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. All right, so habit number five is a big habit that applies to this topic. And that habit is seek first to understand, then to be understood. So you pretty much have to know where the other person's coming from before you can have any meaningful conversation. And one of the ways to do that is a technique called active listening. Now, me, me, me personally, I, some people swear by this and say this is the technique to talk to people. And it's basically some person says something and you sort of repeat it in your own words. And it just sort of you make sure you understand what the person's saying. So some person says, says something and you go something like, OK, you said this. What I heard you say was X, Y and Z. And then that person has a chance to correct you or not. And then that, that is honestly a, a good way to do certain things. It's it's a little awkward to actually to actually do. But it's it is one of the tools in your communication toolkit that that's worth having. I, I use it occasionally, but we're gonna break up this episode just a little bit. So this is a clip from the show Everybody Loves Raymond, and it actually deals uh, slightly with the topic of active listening. And again, we're not gonna talk a whole lot about active listening. I just think this would be a uh, an interesting breakup of the episode and maybe get you smiling before uh, we get into a little deeper thing. So let's play this clip. Uh, again, this is from Everybody Loves Raymond, and this is when him and his wife are in some sort of classroom setting. They, it looks like they attended some sort of lecture. So anyway, check this out. So if you've ruled out any medical problem and your child is still wetting the bed, he may be trying to tell you something. He's telling you, I have to pee. <laughs> so I think we're going to wrap it up for tonight. But before we do, are there any other questions? Yes, uh, Debra. Yeah. Um, we have a six-year-old daughter, and she's a great kid. But she's been having trouble listening, and she's been very stubborn lately. But that's every kid. It's not. It's just a phase, right? Well, this is a perfect opportunity for you to try some active listening. Thank you. We'll try that. Wait a second. Wait. So active listening, I'm not familiar with that. Well, it's encouraging your child to express herself verbally without influencing her with your own preconceived notions or opinions. Got it. Here we go. Well, um, why don't we try to illustrate this with a little role playing? Let's have you. Ray, is it? No. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Come to the front of the class. Why don't you go? Why don't you go, Deb? Don't be shy. Now, Ray, let's just say that I'm your daughter and um, I refuse to, to go to visit Grandma on her birthday. Well, in this case, I happen to know Grandma and I can't say I blame you. <laughs> <laughs> just hypothetically, Ray, all right? Now, let's just say, Ray, that you want to get from your daughter what she's really feeling. Go ahead. 
Okay, daughter, you have to go to grandma's house. I'm not going. Uh, well, you have to go. It's her birthday. I hate when you make me do things. <sighs> Look, I'm not making you go, okay? It's grandma's birthday. There aren't going to be many more of them. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Just for a second, Ray. Um, you see, I don't think at this point we need to discuss Grandma's mortality. Oh. Doing, Ray? Don't... I'm playing the game. It's not a game. It's okay. It's okay. Ray, if I say to you, I hate when you make me do things, perhaps you could acknowledge my feelings by saying something like, you feel you don't have any control over our plans. You understand? That doesn't sound like something I would say. It just takes a little practice. Come on. Yeah, let's, let's, let's... All my friends are going to the park, but I have to go to some boring party? Uh, you think that the party's going to be boring? That's it, Ray. See, you're reflecting her feelings back. Yes. yes! It's just a bunch of grown-ups sitting around an old house. I want to be with my friends. But Grandma has that big bowl of coffee nips. <laughs> I don't care. And you can't make me. What are you doing? I'm not going. Well, yeah, please, get up. You get up. Why do I have to go? Well, I don't know. But why? Why? Because I said so. Huh? <laughs> that was big when I was a kid. All right. Look, Mommy said you got to go. Mommy out of it, Ray. Thank you. Right. Look, you better get up or... Or what? Or no more TV. No, Ray. Okay. Or you're going to boarding school. <laughs> do you always threaten? No. No, sometimes she yells. Oh, Ray. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Thank you all for coming. I'll see you next week. Ray and Deborah, I'd like you to stay after class, please. I think we need to talk. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that humorous scenario and laughed a little bit because now I am going to be a little bit more direct and maybe make you feel kind of bad. Well, feel bad in a good way, hopefully, if that makes any sense. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you are walking through a bookstore. And I I know bookstores are few and far between these days, uh, given the rise of Amazon and, and online book purchasing. But anyway, imagine you're going through a bookstore and you, you see a book and the title of the book is called Talking Too Crazy. And the subtitle is How to Deal with the Irrational and Impossible People in Your Life. Now think about that title and now think about how many people that you know could could read that book and stand to read that book and could benefit by reading a book like that. And to be clear, this is not like clinical crazy like insane. This is a garden variety crazy, just people acting, you know, irrational and not making a whole lot of sense uh, in their interactions with you. Like how many people do you know that you would love that they read that book? You're like, oh yeah, my my friends, my coworkers, my parents, my brothers, my sisters, my family, my cousins, like everybody, everyone could stand to read that book. It would make my life so much easier if people read that book because you know what? All these people are crazy. Now for a second, go back to all those questions I asked you. Are you a mean person? Are you a nice person? Are you a hard worker? Are you lazy? And two of the questions were, one, are you a rational person? The other one was, 
are you an irrational person? Well, the answer to all of those questions, they were all sort of trick questions, but the answer to all of them is yes. I mean, think about it. There are times in your life where you are totally giving, and there are times in your life where you are totally selfish. There are times when you are trustworthy and honest, and there have been other times where you're lying through your teeth. We've all been hardworking. We've all been lazy. And guess what? We've all been rational and completely fine and completely logical in how we talk in our decisions. And there's been times where we've been flat out crazy, like completely irrational. So who is this book for, Talking to Crazy? Is it possible that maybe you and I are the crazy ones that need to read this book? Well, I'm going to argue that that is in fact the case. So when I first came across this title, I'm like, oh, this this sounds like an interesting book. Uh, I could maybe think of some people that could stand to read this book or you know, what it claims that it can provide for someone. So I went ahead and gave it a listen. And honestly, at first, I wasn't a big fan. I had actually stopped reading the book. You know, it's a psychologist that wrote this and he talks about the three brains. There's like a reptilian brain and a I don't know, a middle brain and some upper rational brain. He was kind of losing me on some of that stuff. So you've got these three brains and, you know, if you talk to someone this way, then they'll do something like this. And it was really very, it was off-putting because it almost made people seem like they were like a vending machine. Or, if you know, if you push button A and push button B and C, then this candy bar will fall out. Like if you do A, B, and C, like, it just seemed a little too formulaic. So I, I sort of lost interest and I actually stopped reading uh, or listening to the book and I went on to, to something else, some other podcast. And and as fate would have it, I, I ran out of information and podcasts and material on my listening adventures. And I was on some of what of a long trip one time. So I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll give this another try. So I started up again, and boy, am I glad that I finished that book. I mean, it was completely amazing. It was so good that I listened to his book that came before that, which is called Just Listen. And I'm going to strongly recommend both those books, almost to the point of it being a requirement, uh, similar to The Power of Habit way back when. It's just something you need to know. Because these interpersonal relationship conflicts come up constantly. And I'm going to play a few clips for you throughout this episode to sort of make a point and, you know, hopefully help you in your uh, personal relationships. And I'm, I'm really excited about this because it, it uses, it, it describes some techniques that I have used in the past without knowing it. And looking back, I had a lot of success with those techniques. And this just sort of puts a name and sort of explain those out. And I'm, we're going to go over some things. And at the end, I'm going to tell you like the simplest thing that you can do that goes a long way. So it's, it's the Pareto principle of interpersonal communication. Like if you get this one thing right, you are way, way ahead of the game and your life will be so much more easy if, if you can do that. But, but I want to I wanna get back and I want to kind of hit you square and direct and be kind of blunt. So if you, if you thought when I asked that question, who in your life could, could read that book and you rattled off a, a list of, of 10 people in your head? Well, the first person you need to start with is you. You know, if you say things like, 
You know, no one understands me. Why are people always arguing with me? My spouse is the most stubborn person ever. Or if you're single, maybe you say something like, everyone I try to date is impossible to deal with. They start off nice, but soon thereafter, they just become irrational, frustrating, and impossible to deal with. Well, is it at least possible? Like, is it even in the running that maybe part of the issue is with you? And I think if we're all being honest, we probably bear a little more weight in the issue and the problem than we admit to. And to prove that point, I'm going to play two clips. One is actually from a book we've mentioned before. It's an interesting story that I think applies, and it's from Rory Vaden's book, Procrastinate on Purpose. And then I'm going to immediately splice that into a a really quick clip and a teaser from one of Mark uh, Goulston's books. So check this out. Having not always been as successful as he is today, he developed this philosophy when he realized that the first person's thinking that needed influencing was his own. He starts in. In April of 2005, I had been with Tom James for 15 years, and I had only managed to recruit one person into my organization that hadn't left. I was coming off of a month where I sold 26 units, which some of our top salespeople do in a single day. I was exhausted with Tom James, and I blamed the company for how tired I was. I blamed it for my financial ruin, and I blamed it for my overall lack of success as a leader. I decided to take another job, but I actually called a meeting with some of the senior executives at Tom James so that I could give them a piece of my mind before I left the company. I'd set it up so that I could tell them how pathetic they were and so I could finally take a few parting shots at them on my way out. The meeting was in Houston and I lived in Austin and I was too broke to fly, so I drove. During the course of that drive, I reflected on my career and the 15 people I had hired, of which 14, had quit. I reflected on all of the different leaders I had been transferred to at my request. I thought about all of the different sales territories I had been given because I had convinced people that there was something wrong with the one I had. On that fateful drive, it finally occurred to me that the only thing that all of those situations had in common was me. The worst part was that for 15 years, I had been quoting all of the success principles to everyone around me, but my life didn't reflect a single one of them. I finally, once and for all, accepted responsibility, and by the time I got to Houston, I had a 60-second meeting with them where I apologized for wasting their time and I turned around and drove right back home. Rather than quitting the company, I resolved that I was going to stay and shape my thinking in a way that I would take accountability for everything. If a Scud missile hit my house, it was going to be my fault for moving there. I decided that I was going to force my thinking to be about what I was grateful for rather than about what things I did not have. I chose a leadership strategy that focused on helping influence the thinking of the people around me in directions that were positive for their own lives. And everything radically changed. Around that time, I was privileged to be mentored by several great people, including Todd Brown, Dave Weichel, and our CEO of more than 30 years, Jim McKiernan. They helped shape my thinking in that not only was I supposed to set a good example in sales, but also to influence the thinking of the people around me with timeless principles that will help them to become a success. They also taught me to spend my time with things and people that I can really influence and to let go of the things I cannot control. While much is written in psychology about being happy with yourself, happiness is actually more closely tied to how you perceive and emotionally react to the events and people around you. That's because people who perceive the world as positive or negative will react to it positively or negatively. If you perceive the people around you negatively, you'll react negatively toward them. And in return, they'll consciously or unconsciously change their own behavior, 
reacting more negatively toward you. For example, irritability begets irritability, and anger begets anger. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so is the opposite. If you perceive people as loving, kind, caring, and trustworthy, they will be more likely to see you in the same way. To see other people in the best light, and to allow them to see you in the best light, you need to explore your own worldview, and if necessary, change it. All right, so there is the main lesson of that segment. Sometimes you bear a lot more responsibility for your situation than you may realize. So that's step one of working our way toward an argument-free life, simply realizing that you're a big part of the problem. But the good news is that also means you are a big part of the solution. And we are going to build that solution one step at a time, starting with our first hack of the show. I want to tell you about a, a technique that I sort of developed and picked up from a, a friend of my wife's. Um, she, Her friend was recounting the story that I overheard, and she was talking about how her son came home from school one day and was really, really upset, and he was crying, and, you know, she asked what was wrong, and he basically said, so-and-so made fun of me or called me names, whatever it was, you know, hey, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're ugly, whatever whatever kids do to upset uh, another child, uh, just picture that that was what was going on. And this little boy's mother handled this flawlessly, and I was uh, I was amazingly impressed with this little... Uh, piece of wisdom but she goes hey you're a pink elephant and you know the, the boy is crying and he's he's upset and but <laughs> she asked that question and, and he's kind of stunned and that stops him he's like what do you no I'm, I'm not a pink elephant yeah sure you are you're a pink elephant no mommy no i'm not a pink elephant okay so what would you do if someone called you a pink elephant like i'm doing now what if someone called you a pink elephant at school well, I, I guess I'd probably laugh because I know I'm not a pink elephant. I mean, that's just silly. I'm not pink and I'm not an elephant. So she goes on to say, well, I want you to, every time someone calls you a name or says something to you, I want you to just imagine that they're calling you a pink elephant. Because when someone calls you dumb or slow or ugly or whatever other hateful things that these other kids say, you know you are not those things, right? You are not dumb. You are very smart. So just because someone calls you a given name or a given label doesn't mean that you actually are that. So just think of it as someone calling you a pink elephant, something that you know you absolutely are not. And, you know, the kid's happy and goes along and, hey, problem solved, score another one for mommy. And I heard that story and I kind of laughed and chuckled, but I, I started to think, I'm like, man, that really applies to adults as well. You know, how many times do we fly off the handle because someone just asserts something, someone just calls us a name, someone just you know, says something mean to us. Even as adults, we're, we suffer from that affliction of just, I don't know, being easily offended. So, and I know this may sound like it's easier said than done, but I want you to use that in your own life, like the pink elephant hack. Anytime someone says something mean to you, just think that they're calling you a pink elephant. And and honestly, you, ju you just have to kind of sit back and sort of do a quick evaluation, right? There, there's two things. Either Whatever the person called you or whatever mean comment or hateful thing that someone said towards you, there's only two options. It's it's either true or false, but you just evaluate it. If someone you just met or you don't know all that well says something to you that sort of hurts your feelings, first off, they don't know you. How would they know that about you? Whatever it is that they said. So that seems like a strictly false statement. So they may as well call you a pink elephant. 
if it kind of strikes close to home and like, hmm, you know, maybe there is a little truth to what that person said. Well, that's that's the sign of a champion. If you can take criticism, even if it's delivered in not the most optimal way, but if you can take criticism and grow from that and say, oh, you know what, I guess I guess that person was right about that. I'm going to I'm going to try and be better uh, at that. And for the pink elephant hack, it's it's a whole lot easier to kind of take it with a grain of salt when someone says something crazy if they're not actually that close to you. But for some reason, the closer someone is to you, you know, your friends, you take those comments a little personal. And if it's your spouse, you take those a whole lot more personal. So the closer someone is to you, the harder it is to kind of shake some of these comments off. So occasionally you're going to get into a predicament where you say or do things that you, in reflection, know that you were wrong and you need to apologize for. And if you are in the wrong, you should be quick to apologize. So how would your life look if you were slow to anger and quick to apologize? I I think things are are starting to head in the right direction if you can develop uh, character traits like that. So I'm going to play this clip. And this is uh, about apologizing. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't always go the way you want, but you need to do it because it's the right thing. So check this out. Apologizing to crazy. If a conversation with crazy went south and you lost control, there's a good chance you said or did hurtful things. If so, then you owe the other person a sincere apology. This will be tough on you. And I know it seems completely unfair because from your point of view, the irrational person goaded you into having your meltdown. However, your apology will disarm the person and cause you to feel better about yourself. So go up to the person and say, I want to apologize for getting so defensive and being thin-skinned about what you said. I'm working on handling things better when people tell me something I don't want to hear. When you do this, it'll increase your chances of putting your bad encounter in the past and help you set the stage for a more successful conversation with crazy in the future. If you're lucky... It may also trigger a reciprocal response, making the person own up to his own role in derailing the conversation. Of course, you'll need to be prepared for anything when you approach the person to apologize. Some people are simply unable to accept an apology, no matter how kindly it's delivered. People with the personality disorders I discussed in Chapter 4, for instance, rarely handle an apology well. If the person responds in a negative way, don't be discouraged. Realize that just because you apologize doesn't mean the other person can comprehend or accept it. Most of the time, however, you'll make things far better when you say, I'm sorry. And sometimes, as you'll see in this example, even when you think your apology failed, you'll be surprised later. Mary, a middle-aged businesswoman, invited her colleague Laura to lunch in an attempt to help heal their troubled relationship. After setting the stage, Mary told Laura that she was sorry for her part in their falling out. Then she offered Laura a single fresh red rose as a symbol of peace. Laura simply stared at Mary coldly and refused to acknowledge her apology. Then she rose abruptly, said goodbye, and left the restaurant. Mary was used to getting the silent treatment from Laura, so fortunately, she was well prepared for this strange encounter of the worst kind. Later, she told me, I feel freer and stronger. I did the right thing, and I did my best. She felt she'd risen above the occurrence and had seized an opportunity for poise. And there's an interesting postscript to this story. A few months later, Mary told me that Laura had suddenly started talking with her again, as if their estrangement had never happened. Mary said it took all her strength not to start the discussion again and dig up the past, but she succeeded. Be willing to try again. If your conversation with crazy ends badly, you may be so shaken that you decide to avoid any more difficult conversations with the person you tried to reach. In fact, you may hesitate to interact with anyone who's acting crazy. 
If that's the case, realize that hiding from or surrendering to irrational people won't work. Instead, you'll just make things worse. Research shows that avoiding touchy conversations comes at a high cost. One study by Vital Smarts Research, for instance, found that employees waste an average of $1,500 and one eight-hour workday for each crucial conversation they avoid. And on a personal level, avoiding sensitive conversations forces you to remain hostage to an irrational person's behavior forever. So resist the urge to avoid or mollify the irrational person in your life. And don't give in to the temptation to call it quits if you lose a round or two in the talking to crazy game. Even professional therapists don't always come out of a session unscathed. But over time, we nearly always find a way to get through to our patients. Instead of hiding, seek out the irrational person. Anticipate her crazy. When it happens, smile and say, here it comes. And then lean into it again. So I think that was a pretty cool clip, right? The girl made an apology because it was the right thing to do, and it really didn't go the way she thought it would at first. The person didn't reciprocate and say, hey, you know what? I'm sorry as well. I messed up as well. She just kind of stormed off. But a few weeks later or whatever, the friend comes back and, and things are things are hunky-dory, or at least better. And it all happened because one of the two people that got offended took the time to say they were sorry. So it's always the right time to do the right thing. The other little comment at the end to note was the high price of avoiding conversations, right? So avoiding hard conversations come at a very high price. Now, they, they tried to quantify that in, from a workplace setting with time and days off work and and lack of efficiency and things like that. But the real high price comes in your personal life. When you avoid hard conversations, you're not really solving anything. You're just pushing something down the road further and making it even harder and more awkward. I mean, that's where you usually hear that phrase, you know, things boil over and blow up. That's because both parties involved are usually not willing to talk about it. So that's why the last episode, you know, when, when the homework was just go out and ask someone, hey, what's been on your mind the most lately? That's as much for you as it is for that person, right? You, you get in the habit of asking these questions that are maybe slightly out of your comfort zone and you get more comfortable with them. And it's really, really critical if you want to have a, a lower stress, uh, highly fulfilled life, especially in your relationships, you need to become comfortable hitting some of these conversations straight on. As Mark Goulson says in his book, man, you just have to lean into the crazy, which is just another way of saying, hey, face it head on, be direct, and that's going to be the best way for you to deal with some of these situations. Now I'm going to play another clip for you from Talking to Crazy, and I'm just going to let you listen to this one and see if you can deconstruct the technique that this uh, guy uses to diffuse this uh, situation that he's got going on at his work. Check this out. To admit your weakness and then neutralize the crazy by putting the irrational person in charge of what happens to you next. I know this sounds like a dangerous thing to do, especially when the person you're dealing with doesn't have your interests at heart. However, it's amazing how well it can work. Here's an example. Brian was a software developer for a major information technology, IT, firm. At 48, he'd been with the company for more than a decade, and he'd taken the lead in developing several of its flagship products. Now, however, he was working with a team of younger developers fresh out of college. These developers had strong opinions about how they wanted to update the company's products. From their point of view, Brian was a fossil. From his point of view, they were screwing up his software with unnecessary bells and whistles. In meetings, the conversations often got ugly. Angry that they were altering his code in ways he didn't like, 
Brian would state his complaints forcefully. Because he was a big guy, he came across as belligerent and intimidating. The other developers would spiral into crazy in response, becoming emotional and hostile. Screaming matches frequently ensued. At the time, Brian's wife was working on a project with me, and she happened to bring up Brian's issues. I suggested that the assertive submission approach might help, and I mentioned the analogy of the dogs. When she got home that night, she told Brian about our conversation. Brian cut her off, saying, I have a right to defend my opinions. But apparently, he filed that dog story away somewhere in his unconscious mind. A couple of weeks later, one of the younger developers suggested a major revision that Brian believed was unnecessary and would weaken the product. Once again, he went on the attack. And once again, the younger members of the team got their hackles up, raising their voices, and in one case, even pounding on the table. And then Brian paused. His conversation with his wife came back to him. And at that moment, he did something that, for him, was truly remarkable. Okay, he said. Let me say something here. I just realized that I'm a big guy, and when I yell, I can be kind of scary. I guess to you all I come across as a pit bull. But from my point of view, I feel like a little chihuahua. Also, I can't stand bullies, and I'm embarrassed because I realize that I'm acting like one. Right now, he continued, I'm concerned about the changes we're making to our software, but I don't want to come across like a jerk or a bully. So tell me how you'd like me to approach this issue, and I'll do my best. Instantly, the tension in the room dissipated. One of the young developers said, Hey, man, we appreciate that. The other developers suggested ideas and compromises, and in the end, they came up with a plan that worked for everyone, even, pretty much, for Brian. Interestingly, Brian's assertive submission had long-term effects. Before that point, the other developers had actively tried to avoid him, but now that they weren't his enemies, they began to realize that he had years of expertise and inside knowledge. To the surprise of nearly everyone, Brian eventually became a mentor to several of the youngest developers. Okay, did you pick up on what that guy did to defuse that situation? He basically admitted his weakness and then put it out on the table and people could then talk about it. So to go along with our elephant theme, that's sort of like just talking about the elephant in the room. It's those things that everyone know is true and needs to be talked about, but sometimes people are just a little bit afraid to talk about that. So you want to give people an excuse to talk about those things. Because once you expose that elephant, the lines of communication will start to open up, and that's what we're after. And not only will the lines of, well... The lines of communication will open up, but also before they open up, there may be a little poison that, that spews out. And you need to get through that poison before you can advance the conversation in a healthy and productive way. And here's what I mean by poison. See, see, people go through sort of um, an emotional road rage sometimes. And I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with road rage. You either have a little bit of it yourself or you've witnessed it. But basically, you can take two civil, ordinary, nice people and then you put them behind the wheel of a 6,000-pound <laughs> SUV. And all of a sudden, these same nice people become fearless and they do things and say things that they would never do otherwise. Right? Someone cuts off a sweet, petite mother of two and it doesn't matter if the guy that cut her off is a an NFL linebacker. That little petite sweet girl can yell obscenities like a sailor, flip the bird, and do all sorts of other crazy things that she wouldn't do otherwise, right? If that same guy cuts her off at the grocery store, is she going to do that? Well, <laughs> probably not, right? Because there's just something about seeing someone face to face. There, there's no protection there. You're exposed. 
you know, you have this sense of security. It's probably a false sense of security when you're behind the wheel of a car and it gives you, uh, gives some people road rage. Well, the same thing can happen in your mind when someone emotionally cuts you off, so to speak. Like we talked about earlier, if you got smacked in the head with a backpack, all of a sudden you're an injured party. So when you've been hurt or offended and are also at the same time afraid to say anything about it, all these crazy thoughts will build up in your head and they kind of stew and get worse. And the only way to get rid of those thoughts and calm those thoughts down is if someone gives you permission to talk about those, right? If someone exposes the elephant in the room. Then all of a sudden, those crazy thoughts and those angry words that you're saying in your head, they have the opportunity to be released. So how do you release all those angry and mean and unhealthy thoughts that someone has in their head? Well, first off, you need to recognize it. It's really not that hard to figure out when (laughs) when someone is mad at you. You can tell by their expression, their body language. Sometimes you get the silent treatment. And side note, by the way, if you give people the silent treatment, that could be a red flag that you have trouble communicating with people and you are a poor communicator. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a difference between giving someone the silent treatment and stepping back from the situation for a few moments to collect your thoughts. But when you use the silent treatment as a weapon, that's probably not a good thing. And you may want to consider changing that. Anyway, the point being is it's pretty easy to see when people are upset at you. So when you're in that situation, what do you do? Well, let's rewind and go back to the questions that I asked you earlier in the show. What were those questions? Are you giving? Are you selfish? Are you honest? Do you tell lies? Are you loving? Are you mean-spirited? Right, so if you picture all those qualities kind of in columns, right? If you look at your life, you've got a column of good things and a column of bad things. For example, for simplicity's sake, let's say you have two columns, a nice column and a mean column. And every time you do something nice, you get a check mark in the nice column. And every time you do something mean, you get a check mark in the mean column. So let's again say that you have, I don't know, seven check marks in the nice column and three check marks in the mean column. Well, this is what happens when you get in an argument. And you'll probably notice this right away. Someone will be mad at you and point out one of those mean check marks. And they're usually pointed out with some blanket statements, which uh, <laughs> me and my wife refer to as gunpowder statements uh, because they tend to explode and start arguments. Those are things like um, anytime you use always and never, that's a really good indication that a, a nice little nasty argument is about to brew. So someone will say something like, You are never there to help me out when I need it. I'm the person that has to do everything around here. All you care about is yourself, etc., etc. So you get the point, right? So someone's mad and all they're doing is they're looking at that mean column. And they completely and totally forget about the seven good things or nice things that you've done. And then in return, the other person starts to do the same thing. Oh, yeah? You say, I'm never there to help you? Well, I can't remember the last time you helped me. And that person is looking at their three bad check marks and completely and utterly forgetting all the good things that that person has done. So if you really, really want to get through to someone, 
All you have to do is talk about the elephant in the room. So all you have to do is try and guess what the other person is mad about. And and honestly, in most situations, that's not going to be all that hard. Because usually people are fighting over a specific thing. So just like that guy mentioned in the clip before, he just put kind of put it out on the table, right? He exposed the elephant in the room. And he's like, hey, you guys probably think I'm a pit bull. And I'm mean. And I know I may come off sometimes that way, but... I'm really a chihuahua. So he acknowledges what people are thinking and they're given a chance to talk about that. In essence, he's giving permission for people in the room to vent, basically. And sometimes venting turns into poison spewing. And after the poison spewing gets through, then you may actually have a shot at a productive, uh, meaningful conversation. So it's almost like someone has gotten bitten by a snake and they've got the poison of anger coursing through their veins and they need that to be released. So you just have to have the courage to sort of cut them and (laughs) and suck the poison out in a way. And you suck that out by kind of basically just stating the obvious, right? Talking about the elephant in the room. And if you can talk about that and give someone permission to sort of spew that poison and vent and get that out of them. And if you have the courage to do that, and at the same time, now this is the key, at the same time, you just sort of take it and acknowledge it. Because when they're doing that, they they just want to vent. They just want to talk about the three bad check marks in your column and how you hurt their feelings or something of that nature. Once they get that out of them and they calm down, to a rational level, they'll start to realize, oh yeah, I forgot about all those seven other things that are good about you. And wow, now that I think about it, I I have my own bad column as well. So you can see sort of how this plays out. And now that you understand how how actually really simple that is, I want I want you to listen to another clip. And this one's pretty interesting. It's it's about a CEO who's having problems, uh, communication problems both at work and at home, and I want you just to see the similarities in how he handles that situation. So check this out. One secret you'll discover is that reaching people is easier than it looks. To illustrate that point, I'll share the story of David, a CEO who used my techniques to turn his career around and to save his family at the same time. David was technically competent, but heavy-handed and dictatorial. His CTO quit David's firm, saying he loved the company but couldn't handle the boss. Employees underperformed to retaliate for David's abuse. Investors found him brusque and condescending, and they passed on the chance to invest in his company. I was called in by the board to see if David could be rehabilitated. I had strong doubts when I met with him, but I knew I had to make the effort to reach him. As David and I talked about his management style, I asked him on a whim, How does your style play at home? When he replied, Funny you should ask that. When I asked why, he responded, I have a 15-year-old kid who's bright but lazy, and nothing I try works with him. He gets bad report cards, and my wife just coddles him. I love my kid, but I'm almost disgusted by him. We had him evaluated, and he's got some kind of learning or attention problem. The teachers try to help him, but he just doesn't follow through with any of their suggestions. I think he's a good kid, but I just don't know what to make of it. On a hunch, I taught David some quick communication techniques and told him to test them at work and at home. We scheduled a time to speak again a week later. But after just three days, I received a message from him. It said, Dr. Goldston, please give me a call at your earliest convenience. There's something I've got to talk to you about. I thought to myself, oh God, what the heck happened? And called him back. I was surprised to hear the emotion in his voice when he answered. 
Doc, he said, I think you might have saved my life. What happened? I asked. And he replied, I did exactly what you told me to. With your board and people? I asked. How did... He interrupted me. No, I haven't spoken with them yet. It was with my son. I went home and went into his room and said I needed to talk to him. Then I said to him, I'll bet you feel that none of us knows what it's like to be told you're smart and not be able to use your intelligence to perform well. Isn't that so? And his eyes started to water, just as you predicted. David continued. I followed up with the next question you suggested. And I'll bet sometimes you wish you weren't so smart, so we wouldn't have all these expectations of you and be on your case all the time about not trying harder. Isn't that true, too? He started to cry, and my eyes began to water up. Then I asked him, How bad does it get for you? David went on in a choked voice. He could hardly talk. He said, It's getting worse, and I don't know how much more of it I can take. I'm disappointing everyone all the time. By this point, David told me he was crying himself. Why didn't you tell me it was so bad? He asked his son. David told me with pain in his voice what happened next. My son stopped crying and looked back at me with the anger and resentment that he must have been feeling for years, and he said, Because you didn't want to know. And he was right. What did you do next? I asked. I couldn't let him be alone in this, David said. So I told him, We're going to fix this. In the meantime, I'm going to bring my laptop and work on your bed and keep you company when you're doing your homework. I can't let you be alone when you're feeling so awful. We've been doing it each night now for a few days, and I think he and we are starting to turn a corner. He paused and said, You helped me dodge a bullet, Doc. What can I do in return for you? I replied, Do unto your company just as you did unto your son. What do you mean? He asked. You let your son exhale, I said. When you did, he told you what was really going on underneath, and to your credit, you handled it superbly. You have a load of people, from board members to your management team, who view you exactly as your son did, and they also need to exhale about their frustration with you. David set up two meetings, one with his board and one with his executive team. He said the same thing to each group. He started off sternly. I've got to tell you that I'm really very disappointed, at which point both groups steeled themselves, preparing to take a tongue lashing. I'm very disappointed in how I've jumped on all of you, and then have been closed off to input from all of you, when you've steadfastly been trying to protect this company and me from me. I didn't want to listen, but I'm listening now. David went on to share the story of his son. He concluded his remarks by saying, I'm asking you to give me a second chance, because I think we can fix this. If you'll give me your input one more time, I'll listen, and with your help, find a way to implement your ideas. His board and his management team not only decided to give him a second chance, they gave him a standing ovation. What's the moral of the story? That the right words have tremendous power to heal. All right, so notice what that father did to his son. He sort of guessed what was going on in his son's mind, and he sort of exposed the elephant in the room. And he did it with what? He did it with questions, right? We talked about that last episode, how powerful questions can be. Instead of making statements, you ask questions and you get to things a lot quicker. So the father asks, I bet sometimes you wish you weren't so smart, so we weren't always on your case. Isn't that so? Notice that that is a question that is giving the son permission to, to vent or get that poison out of his system. All those crazy thoughts in his head. And as you have more of these conversations, you'll start to perfect those questions, right? Because there is some good questions and there's some not so good questions. 
So for example, if a husband senses that his wife is mad and he goes, what's wrong with you? You know, that's, that's a question, but A, the tone could be off and B, you may not get a response because you're, you're not guessing (laughs) enough what's going on in, in the wife's head. And if you're totally clueless, especially in the husband wife type uh, relationship conversation, you could even ask a question like this. You probably think I'm a pretty bad husband right now, don't you? So notice that they're, they're both questions, but one one gives the wife permission to vent, right? One is like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, it's almost like the problem is on the wife and not the husband. Whereas the question, you probably think I'm a bad husband right now. That just, that is, you're giving permission, right? That's that's one key ingredient to all of this. You're giving someone permission to talk about an uncomfortable topic that they most likely want to vent about. And to further illustrate that situation, I'm going to play another clip that deals with a situation that very few of us have to deal with. And that's when you have to care for someone that has special needs and just the extra stress that goes along with that. But it also is going to drive home the amazing power of some well-worded and genuine questions. So give this a listen. Does this sound like your life? You come home exhausted after work, and all you want is a little quiet. And maybe, if you're lucky, a little affection. But instead, your partner lights into you as soon as you get in the door. Do you know what your daughter did at school today? She humiliated me in front of the PTA president. When I offered to make something for the bake sale, she said, I'll bet people would pay not to eat my mom's crappy gluten-free cookies. After everything I do to make sure she eats right, she embarrasses me about it. You see yourself as the calm person in your relationship and your partner as the irrational one. So when your partner starts yelling, you see yourself as a human sedative. That's why you say something like, Okay, okay, it's all right, calm down, it was just a joke. Or you say, I know she mouths off sometimes, but hey, underneath that attitude, she's a good kid. Or you say, hey, I had a bad day too, but it's over, so let's relax and talk about something else. And that's when all hell breaks loose. Because guess what? You didn't pour baking soda on the fire. You poured lighter fluid on it. Calm down, your partner says. That's easy for you to say. She doesn't pull crap like this on you because she hardly even knows you. I don't even know you. That's because you're married to your job. And furthermore, where is that milk I asked you to pick up on your way home from work? Don't you listen to anything I say? What's happening here? You're being calm, sensible, and rational. And you're totally screwing up. Your partner doesn't need a human sedative right now. Your partner needs a human shock absorber. Just ask Ben, who learned this lesson the hard way. When I think of my marriage, it's Bambi meets Groundhog Day, Ben told me. What do you mean? I asked. Nearly every day when I leave work, I feel like a cute little baby deer romping through the forest and looking forward to seeing my family. And then, wham! Angie hits me with a shotgun blast about something I did wrong or says, We've got a problem. It happens in seconds. Almost like she can't wait to lay into me. I don't even have a chance to take my jacket off. What happens after that? I asked. I try to calm her down, but that just makes her go ballistic. Tell me a little about Angie, I said. She's actually terrific, said Ben. I'd be lost without her. She works, and she also handles most of what goes on in our house. That includes dealing with our eight-year-old son, Jack, who has severe autism. And it includes taking care of our 12-year-old daughter, Abby, who's easier to manage, but still a handful. Angie is a control freak and a bit of a perfectionist, and the kids drive her crazy. Ben told me that Angie's parents divorced when she was 11. Her dad is pretty much out of the picture now, but her mom is always criticizing her. Angie feels like she can't ever please her. Do you think Angie got her critical and perfectionistic nature from her mom? 
I asked. Absolutely, he said. But to Angie's credit, she can't stand those qualities in herself. However, when she's stressed, and Jack does that to her every day, her worst side comes out. I looked Ben straight in the eye and asked, Do you think Angie ever wished that Jack had never been born, or even worse, that he were out of her life? Maybe permanently? Whoa, Ben blurted out. He looked shocked, but he was quiet for a minute. Then he said, I guess she's sort of hinted once or twice on really bad days that she wished he'd never been born, but I've never heard her say the rest of it. So she's never told you that she wished Jack was dead? I asked. That's crazy. No, of course not. How could you suggest such a thing? Ben said, alarmed by my question. Because when we're under a huge stress, as controlling, perfectionistic Angie is when she's dealing with Jack acting at his worst, we become distressed, I said. And when we become distressed, our lower brain takes over, and all we can think about is escaping. I asked Ben if Angie dealt with Jack's behaviors or her own anger about those behaviors by giving Jack or herself a time out. Wow, that's exactly what she does. How did you know that? Ben asked. Simple, I said. As you said, Angie's a good person and doesn't want to be like her mother. When Jack pushes her buttons, she needs to do something physically to prevent herself from becoming cruel or maybe even abusive. That's why she knows that either Jack or she needs a time out. Similarly, she needs to do something emotionally to prevent herself from thinking cruel thoughts. That's where you come in, Bambi. What do you mean? Ben asked. If Angie's unconscious mind is saying to her, the only way for this problem to be over is for Jack to die, she can't possibly allow herself to feel such a thought. So she takes it out on you, which explains why nothing you say or do makes it better. That's because the issue isn't about you. The issue is Angie wanting to get away from thoughts and feelings that would cause her to feel horrible about herself. Ben's eyes began to tear up. Wow, it all makes sense now, he said. What can I do? There's an awkward term in psychology called mediated catharsis, I said. It means feeling some of the awful feelings she's feeling and talking with her about them. For instance, you can say, Angie, do you ever hate Jack and wish he was gone from our lives and your life? Because if I were you, I think I might think that a lot. In fact, I think if I didn't have you dealing with him, I might think that myself, and it's a devastating thought. Saying that will help her feel less alone and less like an awful person. On a practical level, I also told Ben that he needed to reduce Angie's stress by taking on more of the load at home. Don't wait for her to tell you, I said, because that will just stress her out more. Ben tried my suggestions. And while things aren't always totally peaceful when he comes home, they're way, way better now. Most nights, Ben gets a high or even a hug from Angie when he gets home, not a shotgun blast. Mediated catharsis will work with any emotional person who needs to vent, but it's an especially good choice if you're dealing with a partner who's taking care of demanding young children or antagonistic teens, or one who's handling the responsibility of caring for an aging parent. Here's why. As parents, we believe we need to love our children every moment. As a result, when children do truly awful things, as all kids do sometimes, Parents are scared by the hostile thoughts they have toward their kids. So they redirect their negative feelings toward a safer target. In this case, that's you. Most people feel they need to love their parents unconditionally. So if they think unthinkable thoughts about those parents, dealing with her cancer is so awful, I wish she would just die, you'll have a target on your back. In shrink terms, this is called displacement. When my patients are terrified of expressing anger toward their mothers, fathers, or children, or if they're in any other situation in which their own emotions are too scary to confront, they attack me. That's because it's safe. And because I know what's going on, I'm fine with that. Right now, you're in the same position, and the human sedative approach isn't going to cut it. Instead, you should do what Ben learned to do, 
be a human shock absorber. So that scenario is a bit more extreme and it's worth noting that anyone that has to deal with those situations, in my book, they're just flat out superheroes. It takes a huge heart and a ton of patience to deal with a situation like that. But notice what uh, the doctor's advice for the husband was in that situation, right? Become a human shock absorber and basically just let your wife vent. And that's really no different than some of these other more run-of-the-mill situations that you'll face. If you can develop a thick skin and just let people vent and realize that all they're doing is looking at your bad column, or maybe they're just simply frustrating and taking it out on you. Either way, if you can be compassionate about that instead of trying to prove that you're right or, or point out all the things in their bad column, you are going to go a long way to having some very smooth and fulfilling relationships. So just keep that in mind. Now we're nearing the end of the show and I got just another couple clips for you. And this one's a little bit more real world. This is simply a husband and wife that have been married a long time and just flat out don't get along anymore. And this scenario is a little more practical in an everyday real world sense. So I'm going to play this since I think a lot of you guys can relate to this. Here it is. Hello, Jack. I said over the phone. This is Dr. Goulston returning your call. How can I help you? My wife, Susie, and I have been having problems for a long time, Jack began. We've seen a couple of therapists, and we've finally separated, with me moving out into a month-to-month apartment. But now I realize that I don't want a divorce. I'd like to give it another try, and several people said you might be able to help. He added that Susie also wanted to try again. I explained to Jack that my approach was highly structured and non-negotiable, and I added, I need you and Susie to be totally on board with how the first forty minutes will go before I will agree to meet with you. Jack and Susie agreed to my terms so we scheduled a session during which I gave each of them an opportunity to air their complaints. To their credit, they were able to avoid interrupting each other, one of the rules I'd outlined. They also followed my rule about venting part of the time and suggesting solutions for their problems the rest of the time. When they were done, they looked at me expectantly. Clearly, they assumed that I was eager to discuss their respective grievances in depth. Instead, I said, Everything the two of you have said, down to the last word, is irrelevant. At that point, I could tell that Jack and Susie were finally in agreement about something. They both thought I was crazy. Odds are you think I'm crazy, too. After all, I began by specifically asking Jack and Susie to spell out all of the issues they thought were driving them apart. And then I told them that I couldn't care less about those issues. People don't expect a psychiatrist to say something like that. However, I was making an important point. It wasn't their actions that made their relationship toxic. It was their personalities. Looking at the two of them, I said, I want to ask you if you agree with something. Can I proceed? Uh, yeah, said Frank. Okay, said Susie, who seemed even less enthused. First, I showed them a sketch. See figure 22-1 in the accompanying PDF. Then I said, People's negative personality traits in a relationship fall into three concentric circles. The innermost circle represents our unforgiving streak. This is what gets triggered when someone upsets or frustrates us. Everybody has an unforgiving streak. Even Mother Teresa had one. If we don't keep this streak under control, we can become 100% unforgiving. That is what bitter people are, 100% unforgiving. Do you each know someone like that? They nodded. Not very fun to be around, right? They nodded again. I went on. If your unforgiving streak overtakes you, it overflows and crosses over into the next outer circle, which houses your retaliatory streak. When that happens, you focus on getting back at the person you feel has offended you. 
You do this either by hurting the person directly or by doing something to yourself. For instance, going on a drinking or spending binge. I continued. Finally, if neither of you can control this retaliatory streak, it crosses over into the outermost circle, which represents estrangement. At this point, you look at each other with an expression that says, I don't know you. I don't like you. It's over. I asked the two of them, Can you see how that applies to you? And looking thoughtful, they said yes. So I proceeded to the next phase. Would you each also agree that every day, nearly everyone has an upsetting, disappointing, or frustrating experience? Again, they nodded. Also, I continued, Would you agree that there is a continuum as to how people react in this situation? At the most positive end are people who don't like it, but can take the hit and avoid going ballistic at someone else or beating up on themselves. They show poise under pressure, and we admire them and would like to be like them. Agreed? They said yes. On the most negative end, I went on, are people who treat the slightest inconvenience or upset as a major catastrophe and scream at others who are mercilessly beat up on themselves. These are the people we least like, least want to be around, and least want to be like. That's because they're infantile, and we find their actions repulsive. Again, they nodded. Now, here is where all of this applies to the two of you, I said. In the context of your relationship, both of you are like addicts. You're addicted to reacting to upsets in an infantile, repulsive way. Your behavior is unforgiving. It's retaliatory. And it's why you became estranged, could no longer stand to be around each other, and split. Make sense? Yes, they replied. They saw the problem. Now we just needed to solve it. And I knew how. From this day forward, I told them, I want you to become sponsors for each other. Each day, I explained, they would work on developing emotional toughness and the ability to handle upsets, frustrations, and disappointments without going off the deep end. They'd practice taking the hit and dealing with it more maturely. I outlined strategies for taking hits with poise, which, by the way, are the same strategies I discussed in Section 2. Then I got to the heart of the matter. I want you to keep track of each situation in which you triumph over your negative emotions. Maybe you stop yourself from yelling at your kids when they're whining in the car. Maybe you stay calm instead of screaming at someone at work who makes a careless error. Or maybe you're very patient with a difficult parent. Then you're going to share your triumphs with each other at the end of the day. And if you have setbacks, you can share those as well, because your partner isn't your enemy anymore. Your partner is now your sponsor. Jack and Susie did what I asked. It wasn't easy, and sometimes they backslid. But over the next few months, a remarkable thing happened. Instead of harping on each other's shortcomings, they started telling me how much they respected each other. They started looking at each other, smiling at each other, and touching each other in the way that people who are in love do. And a year later, they renewed their wedding vows. Over the course of my early years as a psychiatrist, I used this approach with many couples who were divorced or separated and wanted to get back together. And here's what I found. After six weeks, many of these couples said their relationship was better than ever. After twelve weeks, many said they were better as individuals than they ever had been. After eighteen weeks, many commented that other people were asking them what had happened. In one case, the couple chuckled and replied, We decided to grow up. Why does this approach work so well? Because it gives each partner something to aspire to. As long as both people are involved in deal-making, they're still focused on either getting their way or reaching a compromise. With this approach, they transcend the transactional and become people who are better than either of them thought was possible, people they are proud to be. On top of it all, the two people help each other achieve this remarkable goal. They cheer each other on, they offer each other pats on the back, and they keep each other committed. In the process, they begin loving and respecting each other again. 
I hope now you realize that developing emotional toughness is a skill that can be learned. That's actually a throwback concept from uh, clips we've played before from the book Mindset, right? There's either a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. Once you realize that you can become more skilled at this stuff, the whole world opens up. So I really, really like that advice of keeping a journal or just being really aware of how you triumph over your negative emotions. Each time your kids frustrate you and you don't raise your voice or yell at them, you have increased your emotional toughness capacity just a little bit. Same thing if a coworker gets mad at you or anyone else for that matter. I really want you to think about the people that are not that close to you that are really causing you frustration. Probably the easiest example would be a coworker. If a coworker frustrates you and you can't remain calm and in control, I mean, that should be a slam dunk. If they're flying off the handle, you should be calm, cool, and collected. Because if you can't do that in that scenario, it's going to be 10 times harder to keep your calm during an issue with someone you love at home. Whether that's a spouse or a child or a teenager or whatever. It's like <laughs> you have no chance of staying in control if you can't control the little things and the little frustrations. So use those little opportunities to increase your emotional toughness capacity. And you'll thank yourself later on for it when you're in a discussion or argument with someone you truly care about. So here is the last clip of the show. And we're going to talk about just that. How do you increase that capacity? And it's one simple little phrase. And you, I'm sure you'll pick up on it. And we will talk about it after this final clip. Here it is. By arming yourself with three weapons that can help you remain sane when crazy attacks you. Weapon number one. Reframing an attack as an opportunity. When an irrational person attacks you, your instinct is to fight back. But that won't work. So don't think of it as an attack. Instead, reframe it by pausing and then mentally saying, Opportunity for poise. To reinforce this idea in your mind, picture your cerebral cortex saying this phrase to your emotional brain, which may initially use some colorful language in return, such as, I don't want to be poised, I want to rip his throat out. Keep this conversation going in your mind until your cerebral cortex wins. This is an incredibly powerful mental technique because it instantly rewrites your old script. Before, you were a victim. Now, suddenly, you're one of those people everyone wants to emulate. The people who are able to be present, clear, and focused under fire. Remember, stripping you of your poise is among an irrational person's best weapons, and refusing to surrender your poise is one of your best defenses. If you can do this, you'll go from being that minor character you sneer at in a movie theater, the one who's cowering in the corner, or crying, or blaming, or yelling, and transform yourself into the hero. That's the person who calmly handles zombies, vampires, or in this case, everyday crazy without falling apart. Again, say to yourself, opportunity for poise. Next, yell or swear at the person, in your mind, not out loud, using whatever language you want to use. Then don't do anything, just pause, and once again, think, opportunity for poise. If your amygdala is still champing at the bit, it may help to yell at me in your mind. For instance, say something like, I don't care about poise right now, Mark. I want to throttle that no good. <laughs> then take a deep breath and repeat to yourself, opportunity for poise. Right now, the person you're talking with will be expecting you to get defensive and yell, start crying or escape. When you don't, the person will be disarmed. And this is when you look the person squarely in the eye and say in a puzzled but not angry tone, whoa. What was that about? As you do this, watch closely. 
you'll notice that the person becomes upset because her verbal grenades didn't wound you, so she may say even more cruel and hurtful things. If that happens, here's what you do. Simply repeat, yeah. And that too, what was that about? When you do this, you're likely to trigger a psychological response called an extinction burst. This happens when someone discovers that an old, reliable trick no longer works. Rather than giving up, the person will escalate the behavior to see if doing it more will work. Let the person go off verbally on you again. Then say something like this. I can't say I like your tone or style, but just so I don't miss the point you're making, what is it exactly that you'd like me to get from this? Not the best delivery on your part, but going forward, in your mind's eye, what exactly do you want me to start doing, and what do you want me to stop doing so we don't have this conversation again? Eventually, if you keep demonstrating poise, the person you're talking with will realize that lashing out wildly doesn't work anymore. At this point, you can steer the conversation back to more positive ground. And even if you still don't succeed in talking to crazy that day, you can feel proud of your own behavior. One note. You may find it hard to keep your poise if you grew up with parents who went off the deep end every time they fought. If so, say to yourself, The more defensively I react, the more insecure I will look, and the more vulnerable to attack I will become. In addition, I'll be acting like my parents, and I don't want to model them. Weapon number two. Picturing your mentors. Facing down crazy all on your own is a tough thing to do, but you don't need to be alone if you can call on the people you've looked to in your life as mentors. If you start feeling tense, think of your current or past mentors and supporters. Pause and take a deep breath. Then picture them beside you and think about what they'd advise you to say or do. This can give you an instant burst of wisdom and courage. I have six deceased mentors, and in my mind's eye, I picture all of them supporting me as I go through stressful situations. As I do this, I feel a wave of gratitude toward them. I pause and let their love in, remind myself not to act on my impulses, which is advice they all gave me at one point or another, and then mentally thank them for making me stronger by believing so deeply in me. Think of this approach as calling for mentor backup. Here's how to do it. Number one, when an irrational person's arrows start hitting their mark and you feel yourself losing control, pause for a moment. If possible, say that you need to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water so you can leave the situation for a moment. Otherwise, just don't say anything for a few minutes. Number two, once you've put your conversation on hold, think of two or more people who've loved and supported you. It doesn't matter whether or not they're alive. Number three, think of the reasons you're grateful to these people. Spend a few minutes feeling their love for you. Then imagine the advice they'd give you about your current situation. Number four, mentally thank your mentors. If you are fortunate to still have them in your life, Make a point to thank them for real later on. Number five, rejoin the conversation. One reason this approach works is that it's impossible to feel gratitude and anger simultaneously. When you allow gratitude to take over, you knock anger out, and that lets you return to your conversation with a clearer and more positive mindset. The second reason it works is that even when your brain refuses to let you think clearly on your own, it can still call up sane advice from your mentors. And since that advice comes from people you love and respect, you're likely to follow it. Weapon number three, the eight-step pause. If you're talking to crazy and you sense that you're on the verge of falling into an amygdala hijack, you need to put the brakes on, and fast. Otherwise, you'll become just as irrational as the person you're trying to reach. One of the best ways to stop an incipient amygdala hijack in its tracks is simply to pause. Pausing causes your amygdala to simmer down, allowing you to regain control of yourself and the situation. The eight-step pause is the best way I know to do this. The eight-step pause. Step one, physical awareness. 
Identify and pinpoint the physical sensations you're feeling right now. Complete this sentence. Right now, I'm physically feeling... Fill in the blank with whatever physical sensation you're feeling. For instance, a knot in my stomach or tension in my head. Step 2. Emotional awareness. Attach an emotion to the physical sensation. Complete the sentence, And now I'm feeling... Fill in the blank with the emotion you're feeling, noting how intensely you're feeling it. For example, very angry, to completely capture your emotion in words. Step 3. Impulse awareness. Put your impulse into words. Complete this sentence. This feeling makes me want to... Fill in the blank with your immediate emotional reaction. For example, tell my husband I hate him. Step 4. Consequence awareness. Give yourself a reality check before you do something you'll regret. Complete this sentence. If I respond this way, what's likely to happen is... Fill in the blank with all the possible consequences. For example, I'll feel better for a moment and then feel guilty or embarrassed afterward. Step 5. Insight Awareness Gain insight into the situation and your own response to it. Complete this sentence. Now that I'm a little calmer, I can see that I might be overreacting or taking the situation too personally in this way. Fill in the blank, identifying any misperceptions you might have. For example, you might say, I took what my wife said far too personally, and she was just trying to point my attention to a behavior I really do need to correct. Step 6. Solution Awareness Come up with a better solution than what you were going to impulsively do. Complete this sentence. A better thing to do would be... Fill in the blank with something that might work out better. For example, to take a deep breath and agree with my wife, but tell her that I'll react better in the future if she doesn't use a scolding tone, and I'd appreciate her trying to do that. Step 7. Benefit awareness. Say to yourself what the benefit will be if you use that strategy. Complete this sentence. If I try that better strategy, the benefits will be... Fill in the blank, listing as many benefits as possible. For example, we won't get into an argument, my wife will feel validated, and I will feel more assertive about what I need from her. Step 8. Let's go. Awareness. Commit to taking action. Fill in the blank. Now that I did the first seven steps, what I am going to do is... For example, try what I came up with in step 6 and not wait for another argument to tell my wife how to give me constructive criticism in the future. If, like me, you aren't great at self-talk, imagine doing this exercise with someone who cares or cared about you. I picture my mentors going through the eight steps with me. Tip. This also is a great exercise to do with teenage and even younger children because it helps them gain more control over their emotional reactivity. When you do this with a child, you are actually teaching the child's mind to listen to her upper rational brain instead of being hijacked by the amygdala and thrown into her lower fight-or-flight brain. Training yourself to be saner. Staying in control during a conversation with an irrational person or during any life crisis, is hard, especially at first. That's because you need to remain calm, even as you're experiencing a nearly overwhelming urge to give in to anger or fear. The three techniques I describe in this chapter will help you battle your natural fight-or-flight instinct. However, these techniques won't come naturally at first. In fact, you may find yourself resisting the urge to try them. That's especially true if your life experiences make it hard for you to change long-standing behaviors. But if you're serious about successfully talking to crazy, these three tools are game-changers. So make an effort to practice them every day, especially right before you meet with an irrational person. Talking to crazy is an Olympic-level skill, and you'll be less likely to experience defeat if you exercise beforehand and develop some serious mental muscle. All right, there you go. 
Dealing with crazy is an Olympic level skill that you need to work hard at and try to develop as best you can. And remember that catchphrase, this is an opportunity for poise. Anytime you're in the midst of a heated argument or you see it going down that path, be aware of it and in your head say opportunity for poise, right? This is a chance that I can grow my emotional toughness capacity and that's what you're after and that's what very few people on this planet have the capability to do and if you can learn to do it you can attain elite level interpersonal skills and that's something you want to try to strive for now we started the show i promised a lofty claim that you can live your life never having an argument again Now, that's something to strive for. You probably can't achieve that like overnight, but I really think with practice, you can virtually eliminate arguments. And here's how. See, an argument is made up of certain things, sort of like a cake is made up of certain ingredients. So we basically want to avoid baking an argument cake, right? There's certain ingredients that are going to go into an argument. Ingredient number one. Remember the story of the backpack, right? Someone got hurt and the other person didn't know it. You know, in that scenario, you're either person A or person B. If you're person A and hurt someone and don't really realize it, but you start to sense it, do do what's right. Offer an apology. We played a clip on apologizing during the show. You may want to go back and listen to that. But even if the other person doesn't take it right, you want to apologize. You know, what would your life look like if you were quick to apologize and slow to anger. That's a pretty good combination. Now, if you're person B in that scenario and you're the one that got hit with a backpack and your feelings are hurt, don't be afraid to talk about that. Remember, avoiding uncomfortable conversations comes at a very high cost. And that's ingredient number two in the argument cake. Avoiding those tough conversations. You know you want to have them, you're scared to have them, you don't have them, and then eventually things boil over. There's a couple other ingredients that often go into an argument cake, and that is the overwhelming need to sort of prove that you're right. And how do people do that? They look at the columns, right? They forget about the good columns, and they only focus on the bad columns, and they point those out, and then before you know it, both people are pointing out each other's bad columns. So those are some of the the key ingredients people getting hurt and not realizing it, people being afraid to speak up and notify the other person that they're hurt so you don't want to be that person, refusing to apologize when you're in the wrong. And even if you think you're in the right a little bit, it's probably smart to apologize. And then the feeling that you need to be right. You need to prove your point. So if you want to never have an argument again, you know, you don't want to bake that cake, just make sure one of the ingredients is missing. You know, you're it takes two. And if both parties are putting in ingredients before you know it, boom, you have an argument cake. So how do you avoid that? How do you avoid making that? So how do you avoid arguments? Well, <laughs> this is going to sound incredibly simple, but if you want to avoid arguments, don't argue. So when someone is going ballistic on you, don't retaliate. And remember your hacks, right? We actually want someone to go ballistic on us occasionally because that means they're venting. And once the venting happens, you have a chance for a normal, productive conversation. So just remember your hacks, right? Elephants and snakes. Elephants and snakes. 
pink elephant is when someone says something to you that you totally know is not true. And that's the easiest thing to blow off. The other issues are a little trickier, but all you have to do is ask those powerful questions and expose the emotional elephant in the room, and you basically give the person permission to vent and spew that emotional anger and poison out. And if your emotional toughness is so strong that you can withstand that, and you can take advantage of that opportunity for poise and weather the storm, you'll most likely realize that that person just needed to vent, just needed to get it out, just needed to talk about it, just needed to talk about your bad column. And then at that point, if you can talk, when all the poison is out of the system, then you can have some real conversations. Then maybe like active listening, thing that things that we mentioned once before, that could actually be helpful. But no matter what you do, just remember opportunity for poise and then give someone permission to vent and be okay when they actually do it. And how do you give someone permission to vent? You ask questions. Always ask questions. And if you can't think of what question to ask, just remember this one question. You probably think I'm a bad person right now. Is that correct? Some variation of that question is basically giving someone permission to vent. You can even preface it. Hey, I'm about to ask you a question and it's going to seem really direct. And I'm 100% sincere when I say I want you to speak your mind and I promise I won't get mad at you. But do you think I'm a bad person right now? Notice the way that question is phrased. You give someone complete authority to vent and get rid of that poison. And that's a skill that very few people have. But you now know the technique and it's up to you to develop that technique. So that's it. That's the show. Hopefully you got a lot out of it. I know of all the things I talk about on these podcasts, this is the one skill that I'm going to try and teach my kids because I know they don't teach this kind of stuff in school. And I know this is one of the most critical skills that you can have as a human being. So if you like this podcast, I strongly, strongly recommend you listen to Mark Goulston's books. And his last name is spelled G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N. The two books that I featured on this podcast were called Talking to Crazy and Just Listen. It's really, really good books, and I would almost consider them required listening. Okay, that's it. You are welcome to stick around for extra credit if you want, where we dive a little deeper into the specific question, are you a good person and what is good? Thanks for listening, and remember, until next time, look for those opportunity for poise. Take care. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There is nothing wrong with your mobile device. You are venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for extra credit. Okay, welcome to extra credit where we're going to talk about the question, are you a good person? Now, I have asked this question a whole bunch of times to a whole bunch of different people, and I never, 
and I mean <laughs> never have I ever heard anyone say that they are a bad person. Every single person I have ever asked this question, the answer is, yes, I'm a good person. And just to give you some perspective, I've even done some charity work inside of prisons, and I've asked prisoners who are doing life in prison if they're a good person, and they say yes. And what are people doing when they answer yes to that question? Well, back to the episode we just finished, people look at their good and their bad columns, and when they say they're a good person, they're only looking at their quote-unquote good column. And they're usually comparing themselves to someone that's worse than them, right? Someone who has more bad check marks in their bad column. So when you ask if someone's a good person, they usually say yes. But what they usually are implying is that, well, I'm a better person than this guy over here. So compared to another person, they may be looking pretty good. But when you compare yourself to a very, very high standard, things seem to change a little bit. So I'm going to play this extra credit clip for you and just think about how you would answer some of these questions. And it just illustrates the point that questions can be very powerful. And a lot of times they can highlight things that people already know, but they just haven't really thought a lot about. So this is just a guy on the street asking a whole bunch of different people variations of the same question. And here are some of their answers. If there was a heaven, do you think you'd get there? Are you a good person? Oh, yeah, for sure. God wouldn't be mad at me. I'm a good person morally. Yeah, I'm a good person. I'd hope so. Yes, sir. I believe in God. I believe in good. I don't do nobody no harm. If there's a heaven, do you think you're good enough to go there? Are you a good person? Uh, yeah, I think I'm a good person. Why would you go to hell? Because of my lifestyle I'm living. There is no hell. I don't believe that there is a judgment. You don't? No, I don't believe that. But what's going to happen to Hitler on Judgment Day? He's, he's in hell. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, I don't know. Thousands, I guess. Lies? Lies? Too many to count. Oh, countless. What do you call someone who tells countless lies? A liar? Have you ever stolen something? In my lifetime? Mm-hmm. Sure, of course, yeah. Uh, yes. Sure. What do you call someone who steals things? A thief. So what are you? A liar and a thief. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Absolutely. Sure have. Absolutely. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yes. I heard you use his name just before, probably about 30 seconds ago, when you talked about lying. Do you realize that's called blasphemy? When you use God's name as a cuss word, it's very serious? Sure. I guess it is, yeah. Now, Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever done that, looked at a woman with lust? Shoot me now. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. I like fornicating. It's fun. Yeah, well, you can like raping and bank robbery. It can be fun, but it's not right. Have you ever looked at a guy with lust? No, I'm gay. I commit adultery about every two minutes, maybe. Have you ever looked with lust? Yes. Yes. So, Alicia, by your own admission, you're a lying, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And you've got to face God on Judgment Day. And we've looked at four of the Ten Commandments. Oh, my goodness. You had sex out of marriage. Yep. So listen to this, listen to this David, this is why you don't want to believe in God. You're a self-admitted, lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterer, fornicator, and you have to face God on Judgment Day, and the thought of being morally responsible to Him is abhorrent to you, so you deny His existence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Makes total sense. So John, you're in big trouble on Judgment Day. By your own admission, you're a lying thief, a blasphemer, adulterer at heart, a fornicator. Wow. So, will you go to heaven or hell? From the way it sounds, hell. Does that concern you? Absolutely. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. Uh, guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? 
Hell. Does that concern you? Yeah. So does it concern you that if you died today and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell? Not really, no. Well, don't try to change me around. I'm the way I am, and I don't give it. You'll be guilty of breaking the commandments. So does it concern you that today, if you died today, you'd end up in hell? Yes. So you're starting to think about your life and how valuable it is? Yes. Does it concern you that if you died today and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell? I think God's a loving God, and, and I think he would, uh, he would see my heart. You know, he does, and he sees a liar and a blasphemer and an adulterate heart. But if you're, if you're repentant, there's something you can actually do because of God's kindness to have all your sins forgiven. Do you know what God did for sinners? Any idea? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to, um, to die on the cross for the sinners. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on the Day of Judgment, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? Uh, hell. Does that concern you? Uh, yes, it does somewhat. You know, God gave you a conscience so you know right from wrong. You know it's wrong to lie and steal and fornicate and blaspheme. It's written on your heart. Do you understand the legal implications of what he did? God's a judge. In his eyes, you're guilty because you violated his law, the Ten Commandments. You're heading for a place called hell, God's prison, without parole, but Jesus stepped in and paid your fine on that cross. That means God can legally dismiss your case because your fine was paid for by another. I don't know. Don't you think it's funny, though, that God would put a nice guy like me to, in hell? But a criminal might say that to a judge, but the judge will do that which is right, even if it's a nice guy. If he's raped and murdered, he's going to get the books thrown at him. And you've violated God's law, even though you might be a nice guy. You're a self-admitted lying thief, blasphemer, adulterer at heart. God will give you justice, but he's not willing that any perish. He's given you something that says, I don't want to die. Listen to it, man. You've got a cross in the middle of your eyes. Think about what Jesus did on that cross. Think about how much God cares about sinners, that he'd do that. And in the Bible verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And He rose from the dead, and what you've got to do is repent, turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, God will give you everlasting life, He'll forgive your sins. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. And the thing that will save you is God's goodness, the Savior, Jesus. He's like a parachute. Turning to a parachute won't save you, but putting it on will. And the moment you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, the minute you put your trust in Him, Alicia, God will forgive your sins, dismiss your case, and grant you the gift of everlasting life. God will forgive our sins, including abortion, and grant us the gift of everlasting life. Does that make sense? Yes. Do you have a Bible at home? Yes. You're going to think about this? Yes. So if you died today and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell. There are two things you have to do to be saved. You've got to repent, not just confess your sins, but turn from them and trust alone in Jesus Christ. When do you think you'll do that? Well, um, probably as soon as possible. Wouldn't everybody?